Do you ever find yourself thinking about the future? Of course you do. There's just something in our hearts that draws us to looking forward. And it started when we were kids. Remember, when I grow up, I want to be an astronaut, an engineer, a teacher, whatever it is. And then in high school, you start to think about the college you want to go to, the career you might want to have. As a young adult, you start to think about where am I going to live and uh, what career am I going to end up with and the person I'm going to marry and my, my future kids. And you have hopes for those things. Also, uh, as, an, uh, as a person with kids, you start to think about hopes you'll have for those empty nester years and what that's going to look like. And then as an aging adult, you have hopes for, you know, what's my quality of life going to be? And am I going to finish this life strong, utilizing all the opportunities and resources and relationships uh, God's given me with the short window that I have? Well, when you envision the future in your mind, it reveals all the hopes that you have in your heart. Let me ask you this morning, what is your greatest hope? When it comes to life, meaning joy, peace, and uh, you know, what, what hope basket are you putting all your eggs into when it comes to having hope? Is it money? Is it accomplishments? Is it relationships or physical health? Because thinking about the future is a tricky thing because not only does it reveal the hopes that we have in our hearts, it also reveals the fears that we have, fears of failure fear of rejection, fear of pain or loss. And then the top of the fear pyramid for humanity, what is the greatest fear of mankind? The fear of death. It's a fear of death. So let me ask you, does your greatest hope give you comfort when you think about the greatest fear of humanity? One of the times that pretty much everybody ponders the future and questions like these is when you're standing next to the hospital bed or the casket or the graveside of somebody you know and that you love. These are the questions that are heavy on your heart. I'll never forget the first time I experienced that. I was standing next to the casket of my grandmother as a young adult. Shortly later, I was at the graveside of my uncle who had died in a tragic car accident. And like many of you, I've been by the bedside, the caskets, and the gravesides of people who have died, whether it's been tragically and unexpectedly, or whether it was a, a long battle with illness. Uh, everything from a pre-born to someone late in their 90s. But every time we have these moments, we start to realize where our hopes lie and where our fears lie and all of those things that take place. And the question is, are we going to have a hope that gives ultimate comfort or are we going to lack hope? And when that moment comes for our loved ones, are we going to have a deep sense of unresolved grief. See, what makes death so frightening for people is the unknown of the afterlife, because this is way more critical to resolve than fears of, you know, our future jobs and spouses and all of those things. We're talking about the destination of our souls. What's going to happen to you after this life? What's going to happen to your mom or your dad after this life? What's going to happen to your sons, your daughters, the people you live next to, the people you work next to? What's going to happen to the people around you when it comes to the next life? And do you have hope in that scenario or are you overcome by fear? Does your greatest hope give you comfort when you think about humanity's greatest fear? 
And as we wrap up this three-month series on the Apostles' Creed today, we end on the very appropriate note of thinking about the future and the hope that believers in Christ have when it comes to the death and the afterlife. We believe in, as the creed says, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And because we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, we have the greatest hope, which gives the greatest comfort over the greatest fear. I want to drill down deeper on this idea with you today by opening up our Bibles. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is near the end of your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible today, these verses will be on the screen for you. But we'd love to make sure you have your own Bible. So get your hands on one today at our information center, early Christmas present. Um, get a Bible for yourself. And we're going to find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Looking at verses 13 through 18, here's what we see. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have, what's it say? No hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for the giving of your word. Thank you that our guidance and our authority doesn't lie in any human being, any tradition, but through the teaching of your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would illuminate our mind and our hearts today as we look at your word. And God, uh, I'm so grateful that many of us here have a hope, a great hope that comforts us when we think about death and all the other fears that we have. We pray for those who are watching online right now, who are here in this room, who maybe don't have this hope or they have a wavering hope that you would comfort them today, that you would draw them to Christ today so they can experience the hope that you have for them. So uh, be our instructor today, we ask. And we ask that we would learn in such a way that we don't just get information, but transformation for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What you see here in this book of Thessalonians is that the, God, God is using the apostle Paul to write a letter to a group of Christians in early Macedonia in the town of Thessalonica. And these are believers in Christ, and they're concerned because they know that the coming of Christ is imminent. We, we are in a season where we celebrate the first coming of Christ, the first advent where Christ came as a child. And, and we have all these peaceful and nostalgic songs, and it's glorious, but we know that Christ is coming again. He died, he rose, he ascended with the promise that he will return. Then we will have a second coming of Christ, a second advent. And so we're waiting for the return of Christ. It could happen any moment. Uh, the Thessalonican believers also felt the same. And so the Thessalonians were concerned about their loved ones who had died already. They're going, look, if Christ is coming back, all our loved ones who died are going to miss it. They're not going to see it happen. What a bummer for them. And so God's using Paul to align their 
you know, uninformed minds to the teaching of the Bible. And so some of you can relate to that today. Some of you are sitting here and maybe you don't know where you stand or your, your theology maybe feels really shallow when it comes to death, the afterlife, the resurrection. What's that going to look like? What does that really mean? How's that impact me now? And so you relate to the Thessalonians on feeling uninformed. And we're asking God today to align our understanding to biblical truth, not to tradition, not to personal opinion, but to what he has said in his word. And so we see and understand that Christians believe that life after death is going to have a future resurrection of the body to eternal life. And this is one of those sections of verses that gives us a glimpse of what that moment's going to look like in that moment, for those who have fallen asleep. Now, can we all agree and understand that the word asleep here is not a reference to a nap, right? This is a euphemism. This is a metaphorical word for death. And what we see right out of the gate from the passage we're looking at is there's a great distinction on how biblically informed people view death and eternity compared to those who are not biblically informed and rooted. And the primary difference is seen in verse 13 as we're told that we may not grieve as others do who have no hope. There are those who um, are informed and understand the resurrection and eternity, which provides a hope about the afterlife, in contrast to those who do not know. And so there's the certainty for Christ followers about the future. But why? Why do we have a certainty about this resurrection? Why do we have the certainty about a future hope? Well, verse 14 gives us the key. It says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe as followers of Christ that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of man, that he rose from the grave. We understand all the implications and outcomes of the resurrection of Christ, that he delivered the death blow to death. And so he conquered sin. He conquered death because of his work. And so our faith gives us a certain hope. When we say hope, by the way, we're not talking like, well, you know, I kind of hope I'll get to heaven one day and I kind of hope this happens. We're talking about certainty. We know. And so there's this certain hope that God will resurrect and reunite those who have died and are in Christ. And so when we look at the narrative here, we know that Jesus Christ had a miraculous conception and birth, which we celebrate during the season. We know that as God in the flesh, he lived a sinless life. He drew people to himself during his earthly ministry on earth. We know that he died. We know that he rose. We know that he ascended to heaven. And one day he's going to return to judge humanity and finally and fully establish his kingdom forever. And so on that day, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Uh, one of the many places that speaks to this is John chapter 5. We're told not to marvel at this teaching, right? Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the return of Christ when he comes, right? And, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And the good and evil there is not a reference to good works, but with what we did with Christ. And the good would have embraced Christ as Savior, and the evil would have rejected Christ as Savior. So the Bible's clear that there's a future resurrection and that that's reality, and that this life is not all that there is. We're going to exist after our life on earth, and we are eternal beings. And then we're given 
really in the next section of verses here in 1 Thessalonians, really a general sense of the way everything's going to play out, an order of events of this resurrection that's going to take place. So we see here that when Christ returns, he's going to have a shout. There's going to be a trumpet blast. And then here's, here's something very important in the order. First, those who have already died will actually be resurrected first. Look again at verse 15. Again, Paul's speaking to believers. He says that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede, go before, right? Those who have already died, have fallen asleep. Verse 16 says that the dead in Christ will rise first. What a great comfort for the Thessalonians to hear this. No, 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 no. Your loved ones aren't going to miss out. In fact, they're going to be on the initial receiving party. The dead in Christ are going to go first. And then, and this is where we see in verse 17, this is this fascinating verse, that those who are living when Christ returns aren't going to experience death, but in that moment, there's going to be this miraculous transformation of their mortal body into this resurrection body. We'll look at closer here in a second. And it's going to be this transformation from the mortal to the immortal. But the dead in Christ will go first. That's what we see here in these passages. Now, some of you are rubbing your hands together going, oh yeah, I love this stuff. Let's just crack open eschatology to study the end times. And, and we're wanting to dig down right now on the millennial views and the tribulational views and all of those things. And uh, our guests have no idea what I'm talking about right now, right? Like what, what, what words, what views, what, what, what ennial, what are you talking about? Don't be distracted by the terms. I encourage you to be intrigued because Bible believers acknowledge that both the righteous and the unrighteous dead will be raised, but we also have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of debate to the time when this occurs. And there are those who believe that everyone is resurrected at once with one return of Christ, and there are others who believe that there's going to be two different resurrections spaced over time with the rapture and then a second coming of Christ. Now, to your disappointment, I'm not cracking open all those views right now. I am going to post by tomorrow, though, a blog on our blog site to give you some overview and outlines and maybe even some other links to dig down deeper on those. It's, it's important to know the various views. It's important to wrestle and kind of align with one of those views. But we're not chasing the debates today on the how and the when of Christ's return. We need to focus, with the limited time we have today, on the what. What does the resurrection mean for us? Well, one understanding is that we look forward to a resurrection body. When we look at the creed, it says that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Well, the body is this fleshly, sin-ridden, decaying body that one day is going to be made renew. It's going to be transformed. It's going to be a perfect body, a spiritual body, and it's going to be recognizable. Well, what can we... Where can we learn more about this future body? We don't have to look any further than the resurrection of Jesus himself. Because when Jesus rose from the grave, he, for, look, look in Acts chapter 1, for over 40 days, he appeared to people in a resurrection body. Right now, uh, I've been noticing a lot of ads on TV and on you know, the, the computer previewing the 2019 cars coming out. Here's the new, new 2019 Ford this, the new 2019 Chevy this, and here's the new vet, and here's the new Honda Passport, and here's all this stuff. And uh, we get little sneak peeks of what's coming. Do you know what Jesus is doing after he resurrects? He's given everyone a sneak peek of the resurrection body. He's given everyone a preview. Well, what do we see? Well, let's look at one of the passages, for example. In Luke chapter 24, 
verses 39 through 43, Jesus has rose from the grave. He's appearing in a room with his disciples, and they're wrestling with what they're seeing. Is it a ghost? Is it a spirit? What are, we, what are we experiencing right now? Look what Jesus says in verse 39 of Luke 24. He says, see my hands and my feet. That is I myself. Let's stop. He was recognizable. They recognized him as Jesus. And now we see him actually inviting them to look at him. So there's a, there's a physicality to him and to touch him. He says, touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate before them. And some of you are going, wait, we get to eat in heaven? Yes. Yes. And so we look at this body in this passage, and we look at this in all these other passages in the Gospels, and we see these types of traits the limited that we can see right now, of the future resurrection body, what the Bible calls the first fruit. Like Jesus was the first fruit of the harvested bodies for resurrection. It's, it's, it has a physical nature. It can be seen. It can be touched. He can eat. It's got flesh and bones. Uh, he was able to uh, basically interact with everybody. Yet at the same time, we see him travel far distances in an instant. We see him walk into a room that's locked up. So there's these supernatural abilities as well as some of the physical things that we're familiar with, but it's a remade, remade body. And we're going to have bodies like that. And that's amazing. Some of you are going like, man, we're going to leave behind the stuff that annoys us with these bodies. And some of you might be thinking, well, where does the Bible say that? So glad you asked. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. Because in Philippians 3, 20, 21, we're instructed, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second return of Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Jesus was showing off the resurrection body that someday we too as believers in Christ will have. Now, some of you are struggling right now because you're going, wait, time out here. There's other people in the Bible that were raised from the dead. So what's the difference between how Jesus was raised and how these people were raised? In fact, let's look at Lazarus. Lazarus was in the grave four days, and then Jesus brought him back to life. So what's the distinction? Let's be clear. Lazarus was resuscitated. He wasn't resurrected. So he had to go back into his mortal body that he was in that wasn't perfected. Like, sometimes I wonder if Lazarus was like, oh, man, this is cool. Oh, bummer. Like, like you know, if he had a limp, he still had a limp. If you had a bum eye, he still had a bum eye. Like he was put back into that body to go around again. He still had to die again. And then one day he'll receive his resurrection body. And so when you study the Bible and you look at what uh, we're going to exist like in the afterlife, we instantly see some myths that get busted pretty quick. And so when you study the Bible, this is what we see, that the believers in Christ will be resurrected, not resuscitated. We don't become angels we're not going to be reincarnated. We're not going to be disembodied floating spirits. Like you don't see any of that in the Bible. You see none of that in Scripture. So if you've ever been taught that, you can just say, like, well, show me that in the Bible. And they'll be like, uh, because you can't. There's going to be a resurrection body. Of course, that begs the question, well, what about now? So, so if when Christ comes back at the end and raises everybody for judgment and they're given a resurrection body, but someone dies here now, 
What's that look like? Well, we've talked about this before. This is the intermediate state, as we call. And we know that uh, our existence is both material and immaterial, that we typically call body and soul, but they're a united essence. And at death, they're separated temporarily, and at the resurrection, they're brought back together. So what about the person now who dies? Well, we look at two passages that are giving us um, incredible insight. The first is 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, be of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so we understand that when we're out of this body, we're with the Lord. And so as a believer in Christ, when you take your last breath on earth, you are, the most common belief is that you are right there in the presence of God right after that. We also look to the thief on the cross. Uh, The thief on the cross is kind of the poster child for many theological doctrinal things. But here you have Jesus dying on the cross, and one of the thieves, I mean, talk about cramming for a final, talking about 11th hour decision, puts his faith in Christ on the cross as he's dying. And in that moment of faith expressed, what does Jesus say to him? Well, you find it in Luke 23, 43. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he said to him, truly I say to you, in a few thousand years, you're going to be with me in paradise. Is that what this text says? Today, today you will be with me in paradise. And so we know that however it works in God's like, spiritual economy, when we leave these uh, corrupted bodies at death, we are in the presence of the Lord. But yet that's not the ultimate ending. There's going to be a future resurrection and reunification with a resurrection body. And that's what we have to look forward to. Now, we also know the opposite is true for those who reject Christ that at the resurrection, instead of an eternity in a new heaven, a new earth in the presence of God, it's going to be a resurrection to um, condemnation. And they're going to experience the fullness of judgment in eternal hell. And this is not just a New Testament teaching, by the way. There's plenty of Old Testament evidence about the resurrection. For example, Daniel said in Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so, yes, as believers in Christ, we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Now, we've taught many times on heaven. We've taught several times in the last few months related to heaven, so I'm not going to belabor that point anymore. If you, if you haven't picked up this book yet, one of our biggest recommends for frequently asked questions about heaven is a book cleverly titled Heaven, Um, by Randy Alcorn. And so this has got great questions uh, that he answers about the resurrection and heaven and and all of those things. Get that if you don't have it. But when we typically think about heaven and we think about what it's going to be like for the followers of Christ to be with the Lord for eternity, typically what we focus on, and they're very good things, is all the physical attributes of heaven. It's the streets of gold, it's the clear waters, it's, there's the, the glory of the Lord will light the place up, not a light bulb. You're not going to have an electric bill in heaven um, and for eternity because God's glory illuminates everything. No sin, no death, you know, no pain, none of those things are going to be present. And that's all glorious. But what makes heaven heaven the most, it's it's going to have the presence of Jesus. Like the most glorious thing out of this passage that we just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is found at the end of verse 17. Speaking of the return of Christ, speaking of this moment when the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive will be transformed. It says at that point, then we will always, we will always be with the Lord. 
See, heaven's not going to be heaven without Jesus. And even though all those other things should be anticipated and celebrated, being with Christ, being in the presence of the Lord is the most glorious thing about heaven. Think about it this way. What if for the next year you could live anywhere free? <clears throat> what if for the next year, for, for, um, for absolutely no cost, you were given the opportunity to live anywhere you want in the world? So maybe uh, for the next year, you get to go to uh, a European castle, go live in Europe in a castle. That'd be pretty cool. Or maybe some you know, chateau in the countryside, or maybe at the highest penthouse in Dubai. Like pick your you know, type of environment that you would love to do. Here's the thing. You get it free for a year. All the food, all the housing, all the amenities. Here's one condition. You have to experience it alone. No spouse. No kids, no family, no friends. Now, all the moms with little kids are going, this is heaven on earth. This is a description of the glory of God for a mom with little kids. But we know that that would be fun for a little bit, right? This is awesome. And you would relax, you'd enjoy it. But how quick would it become old? You can't share it with the people you love. You can't share it with others that get to experience it with you. It would become pretty dull pretty quick. See, that's what's so cool about heaven is heaven will never become dull. It'll never become lonely, not just because it's going to be an amazing place, but because Christ will be there. And we get to spend eternity with the one who loves us most. And we love him. And so we know that this is a picture of everlasting life. Also, uh, we have kind of a mythological understanding that when we die and and the, the eternal life is going to be up there somewhere, we know that's kind of the case now, but when you look at eternal life in Scripture and you go to probably the key passage for us to understand, it's going to be a remade heaven and earth. Just like our bodies are going to be remade to a perfect body, God's going to remake the heavens and earth to perfection again, and then he's going to come be with us, and that's everlasting life. That's what it's going to look like. Look at Revelation 21 with me. Just a few first few verses. And God has given this vision to the Apostle John, a glimpse of the future. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. It's coming down, right? Why? Well, it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is what? With man. He will dwell, what's it say? With them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And so when we think about eternity, it's this whole image of the floating cloud, halo, harp. That's more like a picture, I think, of hell, right? You know, like that doesn't sound like heaven. No, it's a new heaven. It's a new earth. It's everything is made new. Resurrection bodies, the presence of God with his people forever. That's what waits us. That's what's coming down the road. This is what God teaches us. This is Emmanuel, God with us. What a great reminder during the Christmas season. And so God wants to spend eternity with you. Like God loves you so much, he wants to spend eternity with you. Do you want to spend eternity with him? And so we believe in the resurrection of the body and life eternal. But here's the deal. So what? So what if we believe in this? Some of you came in today heavy-hearted. Like you've got bills you can't pay. There's health issues going on. Like you've got people around you. Maybe they're getting ready to die or, you know, just something that's vexing you. 
How does all this help? Well, look at verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. There's this word that starts that verse, and it's the word therefore. And the word therefore literally means so that. So God gives us all this understanding of what's going to happen. Hey, the Christ is coming back. The, the dead in Christ is going to rise first. We're going to be transformed. We're going to spend forever with the Lord. Okay? So that we can encourage one another with these words. Because of what we just read, because of what we just heard, we can be encouraged. Some of your translations might use the word comfort. Here's why. The original word in the Greek for comfort or encouragement here is the word parakaleo, and it means to encourage and strengthen by consolation. To encourage and strengthen by consolation to comfort. Why do we need comfort? Because we have fear. And what's our greatest fear? death. And so everything that we just read gives us hope and comfort over all our fears, really, but especially death. And so how good is it of God that he has truly given us the greatest hope that will give us the greatest comfort over the greatest fear? This is what God has given us. And some of you have been putting your hope in the wrong place. You have lots of uncertainty in your life right now. And instead of being a person of hope, you feel hopeless. You're placing trust in what is here and now, not tied into what's then and there that's yours. And so you need to seek the comfort that's yours in Christ to remedy your fears, especially the fear of death. And so because God has secured for the believer what will happen in the future, through the resurrection and everlasting life, we have hope and we have this comfort. And this is a hope that we receive when we place our faith in Christ. This is a hope that we live in, that we walk in when we uh, know Christ and we don't let all those fears grip us. And this is also a hope that we share with others to encourage them and comfort them. And so really our application revolves around those three understandings of what we have because of the resurrection and everlasting life. So let me ask you three questions, each one with an action step. The first question is this, have you received this hope? Have you received this hope? Some of you are watching online right now, some of you are here in this room, and you do not have a relationship with Christ. You do not know for certain that you're going to heaven. Uh, you have not reconciled your broken relationship with the God who made you. Well, God took the first step by reconciling uh, us through Christ, saying because Christ came and died on the cross, because he rose from the grave, you now can be reconciled with God, but you have to take that step of faith. And so if you've not received the hope that we're talking about, why would you delay any longer? Why would you not want to resolve and put to rest this uncertainty and this hopelessness in your life? And we're not talking about a get out a free card from hell. We're not talking about like, oh, I just better do this because just in case. We're talking about the way I do life doesn't work. I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm lost, and everything I'm trying to grasp right now to give me hope isn't giving it to me. And you're having a moment of clarity to realize the only one who can solve all these issues in your life is Christ. And so receiving the hope means you turn from yourself to Christ and you tell him, and you can tell him even now, you can tell him in the next few minutes, I'm lost, I'm broken, I need you. I'm sinful and I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I'm gonna follow you now. And so if you've not received that hope, receive it now. 
just through prayer, just through telling the Lord, just by taking that step of faith and belief. And if you do so, we want to celebrate that with you. We want to come alongside you, but you need to let us know you made that decision. And so in your program, you have a response card. All you got to do is say, I'm coming to Christ. I've received Christ today. And at the end of the service, there'll be some baskets that come around. Turn those in. If you're online, you can email us at connect at cvconline.org and let us know you gave your life to Christ and then we want to come alongside you and help you grow in this relationship and in this hope that you have in Christ. And so have you received this hope? If not, take that step of receiving it. Second, are you living by this hope? This is really more for you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you living by this hope? When tragedy, when difficulty, when sickness, when death comes knocking, do you walk in faith and certainty that comes with knowing that your resurrection is secure, or do you get sideways and, and, and let it spin you out? I think one of the saddest realities is there's a bunch of people right now walking around professing Jesus with their mouth, but then when difficulty comes or when death comes, they don't look, sound, or seem any different than those who don't know Christ. And it goes right back to the word we saw in Thessalonians. Like, they speak informed, but they live uninformed. Are you a person who speaks informed, but when others observe your life, you live uninformed? And so, when a loved one dies, when you think about death and resurrection, when uh, difficulty comes in your life, is there a hope or a hopelessness that the people around you sense in your life? We can live in this hope. God has given you the greatest hope. It will give you the greatest comfort over the greatest fear. And if, if you can be comforted with the greatest fear of, man, of mankind, which is death, then how much more can you be comforted with all the other fears that are all underneath it? We've got to live in this hope. So walk in the hope. Walk in the certainty. Walk in the confidence. Walk in the courage that Christ has given you, knowing the outcome of what's going to happen. Look, if you know what happens at the end of the book, you can, you can enjoy all the chapters in between. Because you're Christ. Some of you need to walk out of here living the hope better. Thirdly, are you sharing the hope? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. His mission is our mission. We all live around people, work next to people, have people in our families who don't have hope. You know what that makes them? Hopeless. You have neighbors within feet of you that are hopeless when it comes to the thought of death and all the other fears underneath. Some of you are working next to people. You have employees or employers who are hopeless, and they're trying to put their faith in all these other things that will never deliver comfort, never deliver hope. And it's our job to share what the Lord has done in our life and help others and comfort them and encourage them and fulfill this passage so that, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Like I told you about my grandma. I told you about my uncle. You know what? Um, I know they went to church. I know they, they, they had the Bibles, but I still don't know exactly where my grandma and my uncle are. There was never a moment where they said to me or the other family members, like, look, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. If anything ever happens to me, I'm good. And so to this day, like, now I kind of have that wishful thinking hope. Like, I hope I see him in heaven, but I don't really know. What about you? Like, part of sharing your hope is telling your family members you're good. 
Like one of the application steps that needs to happen today within the next few hours is you need to look at your spouse, you need to look at your kids, you need to look at family members or friends and say, hey, look, I need to tell you something. If anything ever happens to me, I'm good. I love Jesus. I believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. One day I'm going to be resurrected. When my eyes close and my last breath leaves, I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. I'm good. You're going to be hurting and I'm sad for you, but I'm going to be really good because I'm in the presence of the Lord. What a gift to your family to let them know that you're good with the Lord. You don't want to leave a vacuum of wonderment. And so are you sharing the hope that is yours in Christ? On that note, I've asked one of our sisters in Christ to share the hope that the resurrection and everlasting life has given her. Some of you know Pam Campisi. Uh, she's on our facility staff, and she's one of uh, what I believe is our unsung heroes. She works behind the scenes, and uh, she's been playfully nicknamed around here sometimes the Queen of Clean. And so if you've ever walked into a clean restroom or a clean kitchen or a clean room around here, uh, one of the reasons is probably because Pam Campisi was in that room. Uh, her husband, Tom, and herself have been part of the CVC family for 27 years. And they've endured many difficulties in their life. Some of the challenges they've had to overcome was uh, their own divorce. But God restored their marriage. They've had accidents and injuries and deaths in their family. And she'll elaborate a little bit more on that. But I've asked Pam if she could share for a few minutes about the hope that she has in Christ because of the resurrection. So would you welcome up with me our sister Pam Campisi. Thanks again for sharing this morning with us, Thank Pam. Good morning, family. It is such an incredible privilege to be able to stand up here and share the hope that I have in the living hope, Jesus Christ. When I look back to 1979, my life was filled with turmoil. I didn't have hope, just confusion. I was divorced. I was living a very unholy lifestyle with drugs and alcohol being part of my everyday. My career choice at that time, barmaid in a biker bar. As my life spiraled downward, I was unaware that there was a host of believers that were praying for me, some who sit in this room today. These intercessors fervently prayed me into the kingdom of God, and I am so grateful, and I want to encourage you to never give up on your prodigals. Keep praying. God hears those prayers. When I repented of my sin, and I bowed my life to Christ. I surrendered wholeheartedly to his rule and lordship. I devoured the word of God, and he took hold of me and transformed me from the inside out. I was so in love with Jesus Christ that I wanted to shout him from the rooftops, and I probably did. And he healed our marriage at this time and put both of us back together. In 1981, my husband Tom came to Saving Faith in Christ after a fall where he had broken his neck. The doctor shared with him that someone up there must be watching over you, and Tom was introduced to that someone, the Lord Jesus. 
1991, I witnessed the death of my precious son, Todd, to electrocution. He took 7,620 volts. He was 19 years old at the time. A neighbor had asked my son to hold a ladder for him to help rescue a pet bird that escaped. And because the power line was uninsulated, the electricity arced to the pole the man was holding down the ladder and into my son. They were both killed instantly and horrifically. And it was at this time that post-traumatic stress became a reality in my life. The sights and the sounds of this horror filled my days and plagued me continuously. And I can honestly say to you that grieving is the hardest work that I've ever had to do. And being a believer made things more difficult before they came, became easier, and I'll share with you why. I believed that God was sovereign. He could have stopped this, but he didn't. On one hand, that was a comfort, and on the other hand, it felt like a divine slap in my face. I grew angry with God, and the anger actually felt better than the unrelenting pain, so I walked in that for a season. But then I grew tired of getting tossed about, one minute affirming my faith, and the next minute stomping my foot in God's face. I came to a place of reckoning. Either I trusted him with all my heart, or I didn't. To say I believed Jesus, and not to believe him, was foolishness. So I surrendered it all. My pain, my doubts, my questions, in some instances my unbelief, and my anger. And I chose to trust him, even at a time when nothing made any sense. And if anything, the grief was just as overwhelming. By his grace, he brought me through the valley on the other side of grief, with a much higher view of the God of the Word and his promises. Psalm 119, 49, 50 became the anchor of my soul and my life verse. It says, remember your word to your suffering, in which you have made me hope, or to your servant, I'm sorry, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my suffering. Your promise preserves my life. And it did, and it does. When Todd was quite young, he was provoked to jealousy by his cousin Josh's newfound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted to know Jesus as his Savior, too. So I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with him, and he came to saving faith at that time. And it's because we have received the word of God, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the living word of God, that we don't have to live or to grieve as the world does, but with hope, because Jesus Christ died and rose again. He conquered death and the grave. He is the resurrection and the life. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And because he lives, I know that Todd lives. He promised this, and he cannot lie. Engraved on my son's headstone is the verse, the dead in Christ shall rise. I've thought about that often. And the day that I close my eyes here and open them in glory, will Todd be there to greet me? I've played that scene over and over again in my mind. 
And knowing my son and knowing his exuberance, I've pictured him saying to me, welcome home, my little sweet petunia, because that's what he called me. Our family's a bit odd. <laughs> and then I, I thought of him grabbing my hand and with great excitement say, mom, mom, because that's how he used to talk. Um, come with me. Come with me, mom. I want you to meet Jesus because he's the one who died for you and me. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know your pain. I don't know your fears. But I do know one that loves you with an everlasting love. And by his grace, we can trust him. And we don't have to trust in our own understanding. We can lean heavily into him. And his promise to us is to make straight paths for our feet. The suffering that God has allowed in my life has definitely shaped me. And I wouldn't be who I am today apart from it. He's birthed in me a burden for those who are in pain and the desire to offer the genuine hope found in Christ alone. On the way home from the hospital without my darling son, a scripture popped into my heart. As I paraphrase it, it says that God comforts us in all of our comfort, or all in, our, in all of our affliction, excuse me, so that we can comfort others with the same comfort that he gives to us. And I responded very quickly, you're crazy if you think you're ever going to use me to comfort others, because this is hell, and there's no comfort to be found. And I praise him that he proved me wrong once again. I've been blessed to be able to share the hope with bereavement support groups for many years. And just recently, my sister and I have partnered as co-chair prayer for Hope Over Heroin Outreach. And I just want to say that we wouldn't be here but for the sharing and the sufferings of Christ that he has allowed in our lives. And I thank him sincerely because his ways are much higher than mine. To him be the glory. Thank you for your ear. God bless you. So when we talk about a hope that's real, you know, a hope that God gives us that gives us the comfort, the greatest comfort over the greatest fear, this is, this is a real hope that we're speaking about. And, and we hope that all of you have that. And so... Um, this is a hope that we need to receive. If you've not received that, put your faith in Christ today to receive it. It's a hope that we walk in, and it's a hope that we share. And uh, God does get the last laugh, and uh, there was a day you thought you'd never be sharing. I've asked Pam in a minute to just help us close in prayer, but before we do, uh, this really brings to conclusion the last three months where we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed as a tool it's a guide map to look at the passages of Scripture that give us the hope that we have in so many different areas of faith and doctrine. And so uh, we have a gift for you, which is the bookmark in your program. And uh, that is just something that you can use uh, on a regular basis. We encourage you not to depart from what you've learned over the last few months. If you've missed any of the weeks, uh, you can go online and just look at the ones that you missed. But I encourage you to keep this visible. 
You know, there's a bookmark in your Bible, something on your fridge, in your car, and revisit it, you know, at least once a week, a couple times a week. Memorize it if you haven't already. And also uh, use it as a prayer template. You can use these phrases to help uh, catapult you into prayer, but more importantly, back into God's Word to see the Bible underneath all of those terms that we use. And so we're grateful for that. Uh, Just a quick thought on the last word of the creed, amen. Amen is not just a magical word that we throw in the end of our prayer life. It means true. When you see in the Gospels, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, amen, amen. It it means true. This is faithful. And so when you say the word amen, or you, you know, as we're about to at the end of this creed, that means we believe this is true. This is faithful. We can rely on it. And so uh, I invite you to prepare for prayer and the closing of our time by standing. And we're going to go ahead and read the creed as we stand and prepare ourselves for prayer. And so let's read this together one more time as a a church family today. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen to that. Hey, let's pray. Father, we believe those words. And God, we know that those are words written by man to capture the truths of your word. So Lord, I pray that every time we hear them, we speak them, we pray through them, we see them, Lord, that it would spark your word in our heart and the truths of your word that comes to mind by those phrases. God, we pray together in the name of Jesus for great fruit because of this teaching. And Lord, we thank you for the hope that is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus, that we believe in the resurrection and life everlasting. We know what's coming, Father. That gives us great confidence to live each day uh, for you, depending on you. And Lord, uh, we just, we're grateful for that. And uh, we're so grateful for you providing that in our lives. Father God, We come before you, asking you, Lord God Almighty, that our boast would be in you, that we know you, that we understand you, that you are a God who practices justice and righteousness and steadfast love. And Father, we ask that we be partakers of that love. Father, we know that you see our thoughts from afar, You know the very words that are on our lips before we speak them. You know our rising up and our lying down. Father, we ask you to search our hearts, to humble us and empty us, Lord God, of our pride and our unbelief and our self, oh God. And Father, we ask you to mold and shape us into those, Lord God, vessels that you can use for your kingdom purposes. Father, we pray you do a work in each of our hearts so that we would truly regard one another as more important than ourselves. We thank you that you hear our cry. We love you, Lord, 
And we ask this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our soon-coming King. Amen.